Luke chapter 6. We're going to talk about a subject today that everybody deals with and, uh, and something that is a little misunderstood sometimes in the body of Christ. We're going to talk about judging other people today. Judging other people. Now, we, we all hate it when people judge us, but we're all guilty of judging other people, aren't we? I heard a story of a pastor who was traveling. This is way back in the days before airline travel. Um, and I uh, told first service it was a train. I think it was a ship. Anyway, this guy, this pastor was traveling, and um, they bunked him up in a room with a stranger. He didn't know this, this man. He'd never met him before. And so he went up to, to the, the purser's desk And he said, look, you know, I don't normally do this, but I I got a guy that I'm sharing a room with, and he seems a little sketchy to me, so I'd like to check my valuables into the ship safe. And uh, the guy says, that's no problem. Your roommate was here 10 minutes ago checking his valuables into the (laughs) ship safe. Uh, And uh, so we all have that tendency uh, to judge. You know, we've been here in Luke chapter 6 for uh, six weeks. And we're going to finish chapter 6 today, and the focus, you know, the past several weeks as we've been looking at Luke chapter 6 has been really the struggle between two kingdoms, kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And as we've seen, simultaneously both these kingdoms exist in the world side by side, and uh, what Jesus says in Luke 6 is that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven Well, we're called to model the conduct and the character of the king of that kingdom, which is certainly easier said than done. And specifically, what Jesus says here in our text, we'll jump in in verse 35 and 36. You've covered those last week. But he says there that relationally, we live out the values of the king of the kingdom in three basic areas, in the area of love, in the area of mercy, and in the area of grace. Here's what Jesus says, beginning in Luke 6, 35. He says, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father is also merciful. And so Jesus here, he says, love your enemies, and love, as we saw last week, is an act of the will. It is, it is not subject to circumstances, but it is conditioned upon choice. And we are to love as the king of the kingdom. Romans 5, 8, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, not circumstantial love. It is a, it is a choice kind of love. It's agape, and it's based on a decision. And, and again, it's not because we deserve it, it's because God determines to love us in that way. And just as God made a choice to love us despite the circumstances, so also he has called us to extend that same love towards others. Jesus told his disciples this, he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Well, as, as well, in addition to modeling the love of God, Jesus says now, we're also to model the, the mercy and the grace of God. Now, mercy and grace, it may sound like the same thing, but it's not. Mercy is withholding punishment that someone deserves, whereas grace is extending blessing that they don't deserve. And as we continue now, we see them both reflected here in the text. And so Jesus says there in verse 36, kind of a summary statement up to what went up to that point. He says, therefore, be merciful just as your father 
is merciful, is also merciful. And now he goes on to qualify. What, is, what does it mean to be merciful? Verse 37, he says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom, for with the same measurement that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the, the, the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus concludes, he says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? <clears throat> Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you who, uh, whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house. And could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream, the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house, Jesus says, was great. Here in the text, Jesus makes four points that uh, we're going to focus on this morning. I spent a lot of time on the first point. Uh, and uh, lesser time on the, the last three points. But if you're, writing, if you're taking notes, write this down. First point, Jesus makes, as citizens of heaven, our conduct, he says, is to be lived out in mercy and grace. This is what he's talking about. Our conduct is to be lived out as citizens of heaven in mercy and in grace. He says there in verse 36, therefore, let me summarize everything I've said. Jesus says, therefore, be merciful as your Father is merciful. And then, he gives us the attributes of mercy in verse 37 when he says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. And forgive, and you will be forgiven. Exercising judgment, it's a controversial thing, and it's misunderstood today. You know, there are several Bible verses that, that everybody seems to know. Right? All the, pot ho all the potheads know Genesis 129. I have given you all the herbs and every seed-bearing plant. And everybody, everybody seems to know that, right? And everybody seems to know these, this verse here in Luke 6.37, not to judge. Hey man, don't judge me. Bible says you're not supposed to judge. Everybody seems to know that. Well, what does it mean to 
exercise mercy and not judge and not condemn, right? Because, because we know, even though the Bible says not to judge, that, that like we have to judge some things, right? So, so how do we reconcile this? What does it mean? Let me start with what it doesn't mean, okay? Not judging doesn't mean that we look the other way and that we sweep everything under the rug, which is typically what when somebody you know, says to you, hey, man, Bible says not to judge, that's what they want you to do. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Let's just sweep this all under the rug and don't pay attention to what I'm doing. Listen, we do need to exercise judgment. Paul told the Corinthians this. He says, there are false apostles and there are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But, Paul said, I'm not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The apostle John warned this. He said, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, <coughs> whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So, so yes, Jesus says we're not to judge but there are times when we need to exercise good judgment. There are just those times when we need to exercise good judgment. And even though Jesus himself warned us not to judge, well, he does say we're supposed to be fruit inspectors. Look again, verse 43 through 45. He says, a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit. A bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. And every tree is known by its own fruit, right? And, and, and he goes on to say that, you know, what comes out of your mouth is, is either going to be good or evil, and it comes out of the treasure that's, that's in your heart. So, so Jesus himself said that we're to be fruit inspectors of, of sorts. As well, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, he says there we're, we're supposed to be aware, beware of, of wolves in sheep's clothing. He, he says there again that we're supposed to know people by their fruit, so we, we do need to pay attention to that. Here's the key when it comes to judgment. There in verse 37, that word judgment, if you wanted to circle it, nearby you could write this, to judge to condemnation. That's the idea. It's not that we're not to exercise good judgment as Christians and size up even the fruit of other people's lives. It's that we are not to judge to condemnation. Now, there's a good example of that in the book of Romans. I won't have you turn there. But in Romans chapter 1, you know, Paul there, as he's, as he's laying out, you know, what the status of the world is, he points out the sin of the most notoriously guilty, the sin of the murderer and of the homosexual and the rejecters of God. And he describes them as being haters of God, filled with unrighteousness, and deserving of death. This is the word of God talking about these areas of sin. And it's so easy to judge certain types of people and situations in that regard. I mean, just, just listen to the list. Paul describes them in Romans 1, beginning of verse 29. He says, these are people who are filled with, with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, <coughs> wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Literally, the idea is detractors, those that would you know, undermine and malign the faith of, of people. They're backbiters. That, that, that name backbiters means to speak against, and we're seeing this in our day and age, that people are becoming more openly opposed and, and vigorously speaking against the things of Christ. 
Um, He says, they're haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Like, you know, you don't have enough ways to sin. You're thinking of new ways and inventing new ways to sin. Disobedient to parents, undiscerning, unworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Who, he says, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. And that's the world that we live in. Down is, is up to some people and up is down. And, and so there's all of this. Now, and Paul said, you know, the sins of some men are obvious. And so that's kind of what Paul is talking about in, in, um, in Romans chapter 1. He's, he's talking about, you know, these, these notoriously guilty, obvious, you know, sinful folks and, you know, haters of God filled with unrighteousness, deserving of death. But then in Romans chapter 2, immediately, very first verse, out the gate, Paul addresses those who are generally, you know, air quotes, moral in their conduct. And those, he addresses those people basically who are congratulating themselves that they're not like the people in Romans chapter 1 that he described. Listen to what Paul says. He says, <clears throat> you may think that you can condemn such people, talking about the folks he talks about in Romans 1, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others, same word, the word judging to condemnation, do the very same things. Ouch, right? See, in Romans chapter 1, Paul addresses the sin of unrighteousness. But in Romans chapter 2, he deals with the sin of self-righteousness. And that's the sin that we're committing when we judge to condemnation. This, this sin of self-righteousness. If you were with us when we went through uh, First and Second Samuel several years ago, when in Second Samuel we uh, taught a, 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 a story there about David. And, um, and most everybody's familiar with, with uh, the story of David and even his, his catastrophic failure, and that's what Second Samuel 12 deals with, that David, the king, the armies of Israel, it's the springtime when kings are supposed to be out at war, but the text is very careful to tell us that David's shucking his respos and he's taking his foot off the gas, spiritually speaking. He's home and, uh, and he's just kicking it. And, he, and one night he's cruising up on the roof, walking without aim and purpose, uh, the text describes in the original language there, which is a bad place to be as, as a man of God walking without aim and purpose, and there he is, and, and he sees this chick next door, his neighbor, and she's taking a bath up on the roof of her house. And there she is in all her glory, and, and David is like, I want her. Sends messengers to go get her. They try to warm, warn him off. They're like, hey, this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, he's, he's like one of your fighting men. He's out that, that war, you know, that you're supposed to be fighting right now, David, he's actually out there fighting the battle. That's his wife. David completely ignores it, brings her to him. They commit sexual sin and then comes to find out that Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, is now pregnant. And David's like, man, I got to cover this thing up. So what's he do? He calls Uriah home from the battle and, uh, and he, he tries to get him to go sleep with his wife. Well, David hadn't counted on the fact that Uriah was going to be more righteous than him. And Uriah says, look, how can I go and spend time with my wife 
when all, and when everybody else, all, all my buddies, they're out on the battlefield right now. They're all, they're all risking their lives right now. I'm not going to go and enjoy the, the pleasures of my home and my wife while all that's going down. David's like, doggone it, that didn't work. So what's he do? He says, hey, hang out another night, gets them all liquored up, thinking, you know, that, that, you know, his morals will fall, then he'll go home. And still, Uriah doesn't go home. So what does David resort to? Has him killed. Murders Uriah the Hittite. And so months and months and months go by. And the guilt is just weighing heavy upon David. And then the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to him. And as Nathan the prophet comes to David, he, he comes to him with some wisdom. And he, he throws out this, this fictitious story. He just, just says, hey, I got, I got a matter I need you to judge on, king. He's like, all right, lay it on me. What's going on? And he says, well, you know, there's, the, there's this guy, rich dude, and, and he's got flocks and flocks and flocks and, you know, herds of animals. And, and he had a, a buddy of his come in from out of town. He wanted to kind of throw him a feast. And rather than take one of his own lambs, he, he went over to his neighbor. His neighbor is poor, just had one little lamb that, that he loved like a pet, man, just d- doted on that lamb. And that guy, he butchered that lamb. And, and now, again, wisdom, because what was David before he became the king? He was a shepherd. And so David is now seeing really what is his own sin from a different perspective. And he blows his lid. He's like, not only does that guy have to repay fourfold, but he needs to die. Man, he, execu- he, he, he executes judgment on that guy, far surpassing the judgment of the law. And Nathan, at that point, utters these famous words. He says, you're the man. You see, our sin looks so ugly on other people, doesn't it? Our sin, our failings, our own need for mercy, it looks so so ugly on other people. But we're willing to sweep ours under the rug, grade ourselves on a big old curve. But the truth is, we are guilty of the same things that we judge others for, and we need the same mercy that God has extended to us. We need to be giving and extending that mercy to other people. You see, what is it that we're supposed to do? Well, Paul told the Galatians this. He says, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should post it all over social media. You should tell all your neighbors and friends. You should shun the guy. You should unload both barrels on that. No, that's not what he says. He says you should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Paul told the Hebrews this. He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, if you've attended here for any length of time, you've heard me teach on this, that this is the needfulness of the body of Christ. This is who we should be as brothers and sisters. That word consider, it means really to fix your eyes very attentively, very closely on the people that you fellowship with. And, and not for the person, or not for the reason of, of, of condemning that person. <clears throat> not for the, 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 the purpose of, of judging them to condemnation. No, we're supposed to fix our eyes attentively on one another, me on you, you on me, for the purpose of stirring that person up to love and good works. Now, that's not always well received, 
right? It's not well received because, you know, sometimes we just don't do it well. We, we fall into the judgment and condemnation category when we want to be the God squad in people's lives and point stuff out. But sometimes it's just hard to hear the truth. Somebody loves you enough to speak the truth. You're like, why do you got to hurt me so bad? And my, my mom famously tells a story. She used to work with a gal, and one day this gal comes up to my mom and says, hey, Patty, you're getting fat. And, and my mom's mortified. Like, and, you know, my family is the king of under the rug dug. Like, let's just not go there. And my mom is almost, you know, in tears. She says, I thought you were my friend. She said, I am your friend. If I wasn't your friend, I'd tell you you look great. Don't any of you tell me I'm getting fat today. <laughs> I'm aware. Um, Thank you, right? See, that's what we want to hear. But listen, as the body of Christ, we need to love each other enough to tell each other the truth in love, right? And what happens is that, you know, people, according to to Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, Paul quickly adds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Well, because sometimes when we love each other enough to tell the truth, we go, well, I'm out of there. And he's like, no, 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 don't do that. We need each other. We need to be the kind of place where, where we're safe with each other, but also where, hey, man, I love you enough to tell you, metaphorically speaking, your zipper's down. You need to address it, you know? And so, so we, we need that. That's what we're supposed to have. But there's a big difference between considering a brother or sister in that way and condemning them, amen? Big difference, ocean of difference. Listen to what Paul told Timothy. He said that all Scripture, that's the key, that's the focus, the Bible, the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. What's it profitable for? For doctrine, what's right. For reproof, what's wrong. For correction, how to get right. For instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. He's saying, listen, that's, the Word of God is important for all of these things. And we have to keep that in mind. That we need to, to set that as the compass. We need to love one another to live according to that compass. And we need to understand, exercising biblical, biblical judgment has two key elements to it. There's two key elements to exercising biblical judgment. The first is that it's motivated by love. I think Pastor Darius did a great job on that last week. It has to be motivated by love. Paul, again, told the Galatians, if, if a man's overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And that word restore, it means to mend. It means to repair. It means to complete them. And that should sound familiar because that's what the Lord does for us. Paul told the Philippians this. He says, I am sure of this, that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God loves us enough to complete us to bear with our shortcomings and so on. And this is what we're called to do with other people, to to lovingly come alongside. And so Jesus says, we extend mercy by withholding our judgment. And, And the second key element of biblical judgment is that, listen, it makes God the arbitrator of right and wrong, not us. That, that, the, the, that word arbitrator, it means this. It means a person who settles a dispute. It means a person who has ultimate authority in a matter. And I don't know if you realize this, but the last time it, I checked, it turns out I'm not God. 
and you're not God. God is the arbitrator, right? And so what we need to do is that when, when we give mercy and we withhold condemning judgment, what it looks like is that, hey, look, I don't have to judge, and I don't get to judge. I don't, I don't have to condemn you. I don't get to condemn you. God does. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature that's hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Ultimately, you're not going to give account to me. You're going to give account to God. And I can trust you to him and that person maybe in, in your life, and I'm going to ask you to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to your heart. You, you might say, man, the Holy Spirit's already way ahead of you. I got a name in mind. I got a person in mind. Like the minute you, you said, we're going to talk about judging other people, like God was there talking to me, saying, you're guilty of this. You're judging this person. I know their name. I know their address. I know everything about them. Listen, I can turn them over to the Lord because he's the one they're going to give an account to. And here's what that does. It frees me up to, to forgive them now as Jesus commands there in, in verse 37. You know, he says we're not supposed to judge, we're not supposed to condemn, and we're to forgive. And this frees me up as I turn that person over that I'm in a place where I can forgive. See, here's the thing, and you guys have all heard the parable, so I won't belabor it, I'll just be short and sweet, but Jesus tells a beautiful picture about this idea of forgiveness. He says, you know, here's this king, he's got this dude, owes him an ocean of money, like more than he could ever repay in 10 lifetimes. And the king says, look, you owe me all this money. I'm going to throw you in prison until you pay me back. And the guy throws himself at the mercy of the king. Please, please have mercy on me. I'll pay you back. And the king knows he'll never be able to pay him back. But what does the king do? Because he's a good king. Because this is a, this is a, a metaphorical picture, a story with Jesus as being the, 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 the type, the, the, the king that's told in this story. He's a good God. He's a loving God. He's a forgiving God. And so... He has mercy on him. He forgives him his debt. <coughs> well, Jesus doesn't leave the story there. He goes on to say, well, this guy goes out immediately, runs into a dude who owes him the equivalent of a day's wages, a few hundred bucks, whatever it is, and he's like, hey, pay me back. And the guy pulls the same number on him that he pulled on the king. Please, give me time. I'll pay you back. Now, he actually could reasonably pay back that debt, given some time, unlike the guy who was forgiven so much. But he wouldn't have mercy on him. Nope, you're going to prison. And word gets back to the king. And he says, come on back in here. Like, is this how this is going to go down? Like, I'm going to forgive you all of this debt and that's how it's going to be? How about this? How about I throw you in prison now? And, the, and, and Jesus said this parable that it was an example of forgiveness was the topic. How we're supposed to, to be. And so, so exercising mercy, it looks like not judging, it looks like not condemning, and it looks like extending forgiveness. And Jesus follows with this act of grace. He says there in verse 38, give. He says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus is talking about how this good measure is going to be poured out. It's a picture of how when you went into the market and you would have a vessel and they would, 
you know, you get, you'd buy some rice, let's say, and they'd pour it into the, <laughs> into the vessel. <clears throat> and Jesus says, here's how they're going to do it. They're not just going to fill it up and make sure it's level. That sucker's going to overflow. Like you're going to put it in your shirt and hold your shirt out so you can catch. Like you're going to be walking around with, with all of the... He's talking about this is how God's going to treat you if you give, if you have this attitude. We're to give of our time. We're to give of our treasure. We're to give of our talents. We're to, to, to give forgiveness when, when it's indicated that we should forgive. We're, we're, we're to give people over to God that we want to judge, that we want to condemn, that we want to be angry with. No, I'm going to give. And I'm going to be, trust this can be given to me. I'm going to give mercy, God, because you've given mercy to me. I love what Proverbs 3.27 says and how the Good News translation, uh, translates it. It says, whenever you possibly can, do good to those who need it. Do good to those who need it. Well, there's four points Jesus makes here. First point, citizens of heaven, listen, we, our conduct is to be lived out in mercy and grace. Second point Jesus makes is this. As citizens of heaven, our concentration needs to be on Jesus. Our concentration needs to be on Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, he spoke the parable to them, verse 39. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a ditch? A disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. So he says, he asks this question, can the blind lead the blind? And it's the obvious answer is, no, the blind can't lead the blind. That's his point. And the point that Jesus is making here is that in order to live this way, what is this way? Well, as citizens of God's kingdom, the premise is we're supposed to live like the king of the kingdom. It means we extend mercy, we extend grace, we extend love, we extend forgiveness. And the point that the Lord is making is, look, you can't take your cues from the world. And, and just take a look at the world. Like, you know, I mentioned social media a little while ago. I mean, you, you've never seen a more judgmental group than any sort of social media forum. People are so quick to judge. People are so quick to condemn. And I think that, you know, the anonymity of, of the Internet allows us just our civility just to completely go out the window. I mean, we have that tendency to be judging and condemning anyway. I mean, Paul makes the point in Romans 2, we're all quick to point the finger at other people, and we got three fingers pointing back at us, like, you're guilty of sin. But, but man, you know, we're, we, when we take our cues from the world, then, then there is going to be those things that I'm so willing to say that, I, I, frankly, most of the stuff I read, I don't think people would say if they were face-to-face with a person. But we can't take our cues from the world. And this is especially true to Jesus' audience. It's true in this day as well. But remember what his disciples are dealing with. They, they've got religious leaders who, who are very judgmental. And, and so Jesus is talking about the Pharisees as well that they're dealing with. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, <coughs> Jesus described the Pharisees in similar terms. He said this, Matthew 15, 14, they, the Pharisees, are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Here's a point of application for you today, and and I would ask you to write these questions down. If not, would you remember them and take a walk with them this week? Who are you following? 
Who are you following? Whose counsel are you listening to? When you consider whose counsel you're listening to, maybe, maybe the counsel that you're listening to is the counsel of your own heart. Your own counsel. Maybe that's what, what you're listening to. Can I tell you, that's a really bad idea. Jesus deals with that in verses 41 and 42. He gives this other, as he's speaking the parable, he goes, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not perceive the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that's in your eye, while you yourself do not see the plank, the big old board, big old beam that's sticking out of your, your own eye? Just total hilarious picture there. Hypocrite. Jesus says, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you're going to see clearly to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. Listen, so critically important that we live this way. I think about in John chapter 8, the woman who was caught in adultery. And, and there Jesus is, and the religious leaders, they're trying to catch Jesus. You know, they want, to, they want to get him on something. And so they're setting him up here, and they bring this gal, she was caught in adultery, and they bring her, and they all got rocks to stone her. Now, I wonder, where's the dude? Why didn't you bring him as well, you know? But we'll leave that to another day. Anyway, so they bring this gal, and there she is. They say, hey, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And the law says that we should stone her. So what do you say we should do? Mr. Forgive and mercy and all that. And so the text says that Jesus, at that point, he stooped down, and he began to write in the sand. And, and we don't know what he was writing in the sand or how long he was writing in the sand. But as he wrote in the sand, when he finished, he stood up and then he said this. He said, let him who is, out sin, who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And the text goes on to say that all of her accusers, from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, they set down their stones they were intending to throw at her and they walked away. Now, someone has made the observation, and this is pure speculation. We have no way of knowing, but I like it. I think it's a good, good observation. <clears throat> they made the observation that what Jesus was writing in the sand was the sins of this woman's accusers. That, that as they stood so ready to judge her to condemnation, that maybe Jesus there, maybe even writing the names of the different people. You know, Pete, you're, you're here, and let me just... Do your, 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 the tally of your sins, Pete. Just write all those down. And uh, Saul, here you are. All right, let me write down your sins. And, and from the, the oldest to the youngest, maybe, you know, the older you are, maybe your list is a lot longer. It's like, hey, we're going to be here a while. <laughs> Hang on, guys. I got a lot to write. I'm going to get writer's cramp here because Saul, I mean, he's just got a big old laundry list. And they all just go, oh, man, we're going to go away. And Jesus says, hey, let him who's out Sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. Here's my question for you. What would Jesus write in the sand about you? See, our concentration can't be on others. It's got to be on ourselves, in the sense that we've got to take inventory. We've got to take stock before we start judging others to condemnation. We've got to take a walk with our list that the Lord would have. Well, Jesus makes the third point, and his third point is this. As citizens of heaven, our character is revealed by fruit. 
Notice that, verses 43 through 45. He says, a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit. Bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. Every tree is known by its fruit. <coughs> and, you know, out of the treasure of your heart, you're either going to bring forth good words, you're going to bring forth evil words, right? Our character is revealed. What's inside you is going to be revealed by the fruit. And here's the application, is that we, you and me, we need to focus on judging the fruit of our life, right? You want to judge something? Judge your fruit. What does your fruit reveal? That's another question you can take a walk with this week. What's the fruit of my life? And if you honestly ask the Lord to show me, Lord, show me, what's, what's the fruit of my life? This is a healthy question to ask your family members if you've got the guts to do it. Like, hey, you know, who, who am I? The, you know, the warts and all, who am I? What are, what's the fruit of my life? See, our character is going to be revealed by fruit. And the final point that Jesus makes is that as citizens of heaven, our, char- our character is going to be tested by storms. Not only is it going to be revealed by, f- by fruit, but it's going to be tested by storms. This is why Jesus says there in verses 46 through 49, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? He says, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you who he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock, and when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like the man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. I want you to notice here, What Jesus says, he says, when the flood came. See, it's not if the storm is coming in your life, it's when the storm is coming. It's not if the flood is coming, it's when the flood is coming. And listen, if you spend all of your time focusing on somebody else's house, and you don't care, take care of your own foundation, when that storm comes, you're going to be washed away. You're going to be washed away. <clears throat> I heard a pastor teaching on this section of Scripture. Famous pastor. Had a church of thousands. And he said, you know, one day as... As he was at the church, the, the cops called for him. And they said, we, we got a barricaded suspect, and he's taking some hostages, and we got the SWAT team out there, and it's a standoff situation, and the guy's asking for you to come. And so, so this, this pastor jumps in the police car, they whisk him down to the scene, and surrounded by SWAT officers, he's positioned right next to one of the snipers, and, and they give him a bullhorn to talk to this guy from. And so he calls out the, the, the guy's name and the guy says, you know, he calls out from, from the place where he's barricaded. He says, he says, Pastor, is that you? He says, yeah. And he says, and just at that point, it was like this demonic, wicked laugh that came out of the guy. And he said, I just wanted to hear your voice one more time. And at that point, the guy charged the police, came out, with a gun, suicide by cop, they shot him dead. He dropped dead right there in front of him. And the pastor's telling the story. He says that, you know, the guy, the sniper, he's got a military weapon, and with one pull of the trigger, three rounds go out. 
Just take the guy's center mass and just drop him dead. He's dead. He's dead as a mackerel right there in front of him. And he says, that sound, it was just ringing and reverberating and echoing through this place. He said, well, the next day, they called the church, the people that had been in the hostage, you know, hostage situation and that business there. They called the pastor. They said, look, our people are here. They're really having trouble dealing with this. And could you come down here and say some words to them? Could you just kind of put some perspective on things? And he took them to this section of scripture. And he said, we all heard that horrible sound yesterday as that gun went off. And he said, the sound you heard yesterday was the sound of a man falling. He went on to talk to them about the needfulness of building our lives upon Christ. But you know, the story doesn't end there. It's got actually a really sad added chapter on it. And that sad added chapter is this, that that same pastor who talked about the sound of a man falling, he's not in the ministry anymore because his life wasn't built on a firm foundation. And now that pastor is disgraced and not even serving as a pastor anymore. And the lesson for us in context today is that we can't waste our time judging other people when all y'all, we all got foundations we got to deal with. So God wants us to focus on our foundation and what am I doing, Lord, before I could ever presume to serve that needful role in the body of Christ where I, I'm watching other people closely and I'm saying, listen, I love you and I want to help you and I want to deal with the sins you got in your life and let's walk through it together. And before you could ever do that, you got to practice that in your own life.